Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and here as always with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hey Matt, great to see you again. It's fantastic. I've I've been I've been on a little bit of a holiday, a little you bit have. of a break. Yes, I've I've gone around the northern uh, the northern side of Australia, northwestern side. Really interesting, really hot, uh, yeah. but the fascinating different different territories and uh, and lots of uh, lots and lots of really interesting people. Uh, I met along the way and and chatted with uh, and reminded a lot about the differences, particularly cultural differences and social differences. Uh, I met a lovely guy from South Africa who just told me a lot about what was going on there, friends from New Zealand that I haven't seen for a while. Really good, really good time. Fantastic, and you and you still managed to do some some work on the on the boat as well. <laughs> yeah, we did some work and did some things, and uh, so life's very good. But enough of my jollity and joy. I am back and into my other jollity and joy, which is uh, talking to one of our favourite colleagues. Who have we got, Matt? Yes, we're going across to New York to talk to Peter Frankel once again. And if you remember from last time, um, Peter has written this wonderful book, Last Chance Couple Therapy: Bringing Relationships back from the brink. And I felt like we only just sort of got into the conversation last time. And so with it, ah, Peter, we've got to have you back. We're going to talk about case studies and, and infidelity and some of the things that he's been writing um, for us as well in the magazine. So in the April edition of the Science of Psychotherapy, you'll find another article by Peter. So check that out. Yes, one written especially for us. So uh, you especially can only, for us. the case we've got there is unique to us. So uh, we're very, very grateful for him to do that work. Yeah, that's right. So we really appreciate Peter and we're really glad that we can have him back on the show. Before we jump across to New York, uh, if you do appreciate what we're doing here on the Science of Psychotherapy, jump across to our Academy site. That's the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. Links in the show note. We would love to have you as part of the tribe. And for a very small monthly subscription, you have access to everything that we've ever done in the last 10 years. Yes, over a thousand hours worth of fabulous material and documentaries, uh, and they've all been put, uh, a lot of them have been put into courses so that you can get a, a CEU certificate that you can utilize with your association. But just out of sheer fascination and wonder, uh, go in and check us out. Fantastic. Okay, let's let's go across to New York. Peter Frankel, welcome back to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so good to connect you with you once again. Lovely, lovely to be here, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great to have you back, Peter. Glutton for punishment, you are. Uh, but for us, oh uh, yeah, but for us, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a blessing of riches because um, uh, you wrote another article for us, which was great. We know we we sort of grabbed one out of the book, and but you extended and uh, gave us a unique article. Right. which we've just got up in the the the, the April magazine and um it's uh you you honed in on uh, we we asked you about a few things but you honed in on infidelity which i think is one of the most uh talk about last chance therapy um last chance you know couples therapy that's really when you're getting down to the difficult stages uh matt you you were particularly interested in some of this stuff you know well we will get there we'll get there there's so there's some very there's some great practical um things that i that i want peter to touch on but 
let's just dive in. So, Peter, do you have? Um, can you set the scene for us? And uh, let's let's put a couple in front of us who are dealing with infidelity. Um, and what do we do? Right. So, you know, there's a few things to uh, know about infidelity. First, is it's it's um, common to think that when there has been infidelity, that there must be something wrong with the marriage that the person is having the affair on, right? And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, there's a fair percentage of couples in which a partner has an affair where the relationship, the marital relationship is pretty good, actually. Uh, and the affair happens because of opportunity, you're traveling on business or what have you. Um, there may be a desire to um, explore some other part of oneself that you feel you can't explore with your marital partner, even though there's a lot going on in that relationship that's pretty good. So it's, it's, it's important for therapists to realize that, uh, that people have affairs for a lot of different reasons. Um, Self-development, uh, be because the marriage is really lacking in some way, um, all sorts of reasons. So obviously we don't, in any kind of clinical work, want to reduce people to some kind of a caricature and mm -hmm. script, uh, really explore the individual reasons for why a person um, has an affair and, um, and understand what's going on in the marriage and also what's going on in them that led them to do this. So, you know, there, there's uh, a few steps that I've outlined in, in that article and also, of course, in the book that are really helpful in a first session as part of setting the therapeutic frame. And, you know, in our last podcast discussion, we talked about some of the general aspects of doing last chance couple therapy. So let me just review those because they, they are important in any kind of last chance scenario. Um, you know, the first is that we want to accept uh, and validate both partners' ideas at the present moment about the future of the relationship. Right? The very term last chance couple uh, means that there's at least one partner, sometimes both, who are thinking that if this therapy doesn't work, I you know, really may want to end this relationship, whether it's a married relationship or non-married. Right? So we're not there to save marriages. We're there to um, help uh, partners clarify what it is they want. And as I mentioned in our first uh, podcast, of course, as couple therapists, we come to the work with a bias towards helping couples thrive and do well and overcome problems and so forth. So we want to name that at the same time. In other words, we're not neutral, right? Unless, and we're not, unless we are designating ourselves as a divorce counselor, helping people um, move into divorce and do that uh, uh, as amicably as possible. Uh, we, we want to sort of hear each partner's ideas about uh, their commitment to the future and be able to say that, you know, we want to have them hear each other and make it safe for both partners to talk about what it is that they want at this moment. And then we want to suggest 
that if it's possible for the time being, let's suspend discussion about staying and going uh, and enter into what I've called a liminal space or a place in which you're not yet decided to break up, to end things, and you're not yet decided to go forward either. And that sets the stage for what I call experiments and possibility. In fact, non-binding experiments and possibility. And why that's so important, that non-binding word, is that sometimes the partner, or partners, but let's say one partner who's seriously thinking about leaving the relationship may be worried about engaging in a therapy process where things improve, because they're worried that if things improve, they'll have less of a strong argument for leaving. It often takes quite a bit of energy and reflection uh, to get to the point of saying to your partner, I don't think I want to stay in this marriage. Um, and now here they're coming to a therapist who promises some effective techniques and some new ideas. And part of them may be intrigued by that and part of them may be afraid of that because what if it gets better? What if it gets better and I still don't feel the love or I still don't feel the trust? whatever, um, am I then going to be trapped? Am I going to have less of an argument for leaving? So we want to name that concern right away and say, look, we're going to engage in some experiments and possibility. We're going to try some techniques for decreasing conflict and increasing pleasure and connection and work on resolving the difficult issues you've been um, struggling with. Um, and we're going together to be looking at you know, the outcome of those experiments. And based on observable changes, then you'll be in a better place to decide whether to stay or go. Are you two willing to go on that journey, so to speak? Yeah, and well, I, I love this. I love this frame of mm. let's create liminal, you said? Liminal yeah, liminal space. That comes from anthropology. Victor yeah, Turner. right. It's right. a lovely term, yeah. We're, 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 we're going to just suspend time almost like we're going to have this um space where we're just going to experiment um no expectations let's just have this space to experiment i think that's a great frame for the therapist to to grab hold of and to all to experiment for themselves um certainly when i've been doing couples therapy i haven't really um it, my trajectory has been a lot more sort of linear I, I haven't had this idea of okay, stop, let's experiment, which is fantastic. So yes, let's, let's, let's not let's not sort of uh, wallow in the past, nor uh, get too stuck uh, too engaged with the future. It's and it's not so much about just being in the now, but it's being in a space that's that's not overly affected. I, uh, it that has possibility and that's what exactly what you call it i mean and of course i love the word possibility the possibility space and uh but and also uh, and I'm, let's comment on that but just adding it into the things you said there the comments you might make it is that important aspect of of the characterizations and the the the, the internalizations and the internal developments and changes uh, because I have had uh, a couple of clients where actually the woman was um, independently having self-esteem issues, which of course is something that uh, uh, comes uh, from the, the the feminine sort of stereotype sort of negativities. 
and actually taking that stand of saying, well, I've had enough of this, this isn't right anymore, was actually a major part of, of uh, self-strengthening. And it's exactly as you say, sort of uh, like, oh, God, if I uh, go back to a relationship, am I uh, giving in? Am I submitting? Am I now self-weakening? So it, it needs that a really open space to be able to to mm. hold on to the strengths and the things you've gathered and the and also when the 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 person who has uh sort of really done the 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 damage for them to grasp onto their um st to find strengths in those actions uh of of recovery and and forgiveness and and apology and so on and so forth absolutely well you you wanted to talk today about cases so yeah what you just said richard uh, prompts me to think about a, a couple I worked with, and actually, um, I I had uh, they they had allowed me to audio tape their sessions. They didn't want to be shown or themselves be the voices in my presentation. So I I had a student transcribe things, change names and identifying information, and then had two of my former masters in mental health counselor uh, students who were happened to be professional actors to the role play. And um, so let me tell you just a little bit about this couple because it's it's kind of fresh in mind. Um, and it, it speaks to what you were just talking about, uh, Richard. So this was a couple married about 15 years, uh, white, cisgendered, upper middle class uh, couple uh, with a couple of kids. And, you know, they, they, they were kind of a classic um, as we saw, one of my old supervisors used to say, refrigerator stove couple. Um, you know, she was quite emotional and expressive and so forth. And he was quieter and, and, and kind of calmer. And initially, that was part of the attraction. And as you know, I've written about how the, the, the differences that partners experience early on often becomes a kind of unconscious emotional contract. Uh, to regulate one another's emotions or modulate, as I prefer the term. And so she was attracted to his calmness uh, and quietness and steadiness. And he was enlivened by her emotionality and was learning a lot about emotions by being with her. And over the years, as happens sometimes, and uh, leads to distress, they'd become quite polarized. You know, kids come, um, he's working and often traveling. He was in a a business that took him, you know, far abroad, actually, to your corners of the world, often, and she would be at home with the kids. And while he was a good father, he'd come home and he wasn't really participating so much in housework and giving her a break. And she did a career change and was in her own individual therapy and starting to really think about the kind of person she wanted to be and feeling increasingly trapped in this relationship. So when they contacted me, and she was the one that contacted me, um, she said she'd been trying to get him into therapy for two years and to talk about what their issues were. And he kept doing sort of, unfortunately, typical male, cisgendered heterosexual male thing. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. And withdrawing, leaving her feeling very alone. And also because he wasn't taking over things on the weekend or in the mornings to give her a little space to develop her new her new work um, trajectory. She felt resentful, uh, and then he would travel away again and then come back. 
So finally, by the time uh, she made contact with me, she was feeling like at least for the time being, she does not want him, to, he was abroad on a trip and she did not want him to return to the home. He was extremely upset by this in our first session. It's like, you know, you, you, you sort of ambushed me and she said, I've been telling you for two years that I'm not happy and I feel trapped and I feel, you know, basically choked up with, um, with feeling unheard and uh, like I can't really develop myself. So, you know, it looked like if I didn't have the last chance couple therapy frame, you would think, okay, I'm going to help this couple get divorced because she's had it and he is very angry and not seeing her point of view. And I said, um, I said to her, I said, look, the fact that you called me and we had a short conversation and I told you how I work and you read a little bit about it suggests to me that you're coming to me to explore whether there's any possibility of changing things so that you feel differently. And she said, that's right. I said, well, then could we recast what you're saying as for the time being, for the foreseeable future, I don't want to be living together. And she said, exactly, that's exactly it. That helped him feel like, okay, there's some hope. And it also meant that we could start to work on some experiments and possibility that I, and I said, look, you know, if, you, if you're coming to me for separation and divorce counseling, I can offer that to you. So you have to let me know what it is you're up for here and I will be of service. And she said, no, I do want to give it a, a try or give it a go, as you gentlemen would say. And, uh, and so that's where we started. And in that very first session, um, I taught them the communication skills that I'm so fond of and, you know, went through the problem patterns, you know, escalation, withdrawal, invalidation, negative interpretations, taught them to the speaker listener technique and so forth. They tried it out and they had a very good experience with it. So that was the first thing in terms of, again, observable changes that they could taste, you know, that they could hear, that they could see. This is what couples in the last chance moment are coming for or what they need, we can't just reassure them that somehow therapy is going to help them if we explore the problems and explore the problems. Just to, to your point, Richard, about time, you know, I often, one of the reframes they often use when people say, oh, well, you've had such a traumatic or terrible, difficult past, and yet they're behaving and interacting, thinking about each other the same ways they have for years. And I'll say, you know, in a way, um, there is no past. There's one long present that stretches back weeks, months, and years. So it's kind of like Groundhog Day, like that old movie with Bill Murray. Like every day waking up and it's the same day until you get it right, until you change something. So in order for us to bifurcate, a, to create an actual past uh, and a present towards the future, I'm suggesting, if you're up for it, that we do some experiments in changing the ways you interact that will lead to changes in thought, feeling, and even physiological arousal with each other. And so it's a nice frame for saying, look, if we try some things, you might actually be able to put some of this in a past because we're creating a past that's different from the present. 
that then becomes the future if that is a preferable one. Yeah, make, and yeah. yeah, just just want to jump in, Peter. I, I go back because there are a, a number of techniques and 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 bits and pieces in there, and and you're giving us this great frame. But I think these communication styles are really important, and just that one, the 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 sort of speaker elicitor um, yeah. style. Can you just uh, remind us of of how that how that works, sort of, uh, oh, uh, and enables them? And so, just give a little that little practical aspect, because uh, there's far too much in there to do. But I, that one, I think, is really important. It is important, and you know, just just a shout out to one of your countrymen, um, Kim Halford. Are you familiar with Kim? Yeah, I, so, not we know of. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kim is someone I contributed a chapter for a book that he did. He's he's one of the premier people in the world, along with Howard Markman and Scott Stanley, who I studied with directly on these skills. And Kim is a big advocate and very eloquent writer about relationship education. And, um, and so these techniques Kim is very familiar with. And basically what it comes down to is, um, first of all, teaching couples psychoeducationally what 50 years of research with Gottman and Alford and Markman and Kurt Halweg in Germany and Guy Bodman in Switzerland. Many, many people have contributed to this research base. Um, you know, what, what it has ta taught us about what distinguishes happy couples from unhappy couples at any point in time, cross-sectional study, and also longitudinal studies with newlyweds, where even though they're happy and they're newlyweds, a significant proportion of them are already interacting in these problematic ways. Mm -hmm. And we find uh, that, you know, six years later, even a year and a half later, you start to see that the couples interacting in the ways that I'm going to describe are starting to not do so well because these problematic patterns uh, start to um, kind of grind away at all the positive things, the love, the sex. But to be very brief with this, there's, there's escalation, one partner saying something with negative affect, meaning specifically criticism, contempt, and defensiveness, not anger, by the way. One of the, Gottman's most interesting findings in a longitudinal study, uh, looking at newlyweds, is that couples who are able to just talk about their anger uh, without moving into criticism or contempt or defensiveness did quite well. He called this subgroup the volatile couples and they were doing quite well and that makes sense because look we all get angry frustrated peeved uh have a tiff with our partner but if we can say look i'm really angry with you uh i'm feeling frustrated rather than you're an idiot you know how dare you you know oh you're so pathetic contemptuous kind of affect and so we can avoid all that and just speak in a somewhat modulated way not flat we're not treating training people to be you know, Rogerian therapist here, like you can say, hey, I'm really angry. And the other partner's like, oh, what, what, what did I do? Okay, well, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. You know, like, I was kind of angry at you though too. This kind of thing can be fine. The problem is when people drift into criticism, putting down the partner's point of view, their feelings, even their whole character, like you're an idiot, you're a jerk, you're so cold, you're a slob. Contempt, which is verbal and nonverbal, um, expressions of disgust and um, uh, dismay and revulsion even. One of my favorite examples of this from years ago with my a couple. You know, I'm in New York City and 
there are a lot of people making a lot of money. So this guy who actually came from a lot of money, he was his father had not been working, his brothers didn't work, but he wanted to be in the workforce. You know, they came from he came from a lot of money. He's working on Wall Street, making 350k a year in the 90s, and I thought, well, that's a pretty good salary. Not for his wife. His wife turned to him on the couch. I'll never forget this. She looked at him with a sneer and said, "You're not a man. You're a boy." I've talked to the wives of your colleagues, and your colleagues are all making a million plus, some much more. So you're pathetic. And he's like, but I, at least I'm <laughs> like, and you know, both genders can do contempt, believe me. So that's just one example. So this kind of disgust, very toxic, as you can imagine. And defensiveness, you know, your partner says, hey, I thought you were going to throw out the garbage, reasonable. And the other's like, who the hell do you think you are asking me? When I make all the money to bring all the tofu home or the meat or what have you, right? So that's escalation. Very quickly, withdrawal. Person gives a uh, partner gives verbal or nonverbal signals that they're pulling out of the conversation. Deep sigh, shaking the head, head down. And in the research, we code all this stuff, right? We have couples talk about a hot topic, videotape it, code the behavior. So many studies doing this kind of thing, including studies I did. And, uh, you know, so the partner withdraws. And, of course, you know that what happens next is the other person pursues. So we have that classic withdrawer-pursuer pattern. Invalidation uh, comes in two forms, an active form and a more passive form. So the active form is essentially criticism. I'm kind of blending here research from two labs, Gottman's and Markman and Stanley's. So invalidation, the active form is, you know, that's a dumb idea. Or what are you getting so sensitive about? Like, what are you always so sensitive? The passive form is a kind of under response to a partner's upset. Uh, an under response to what Gottman would now call a, a partner's bid for attention. Hey, honey, I read something interesting about uh, in the news, or, oh, I had such a tough day at work. And rather than saying, oh, really? Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Or you know what? I definitely want to hear about that. I just got to finish up this email. It said it's like, uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Hey, what are we having for dinner? <laughs> kind of like a non-response or even like a sort of attempt to be helpful, but it's not really helpful. Like, oh, honey, not your boss again. You'll be okay. I know you can handle it. Just fuck her up and you'll, you'll be fine. I wanted to talk to you. Could you listen to my feelings a little bit? Mm, yeah. The fourth major problem pattern is called uh, negative interpretations. This is where we develop a theory of malintent about our partner's behavior. You're saying that because clearly you have no respect for me. Otherwise, how could you say something like that? Um, you obviously don't love me. What do you mean? Well, we've had three dinner dates and you come late to each one, so obviously, you don't want to go on dinner dates with me. So don't lie. Just tell me the truth. You're trying to control me. You don't love me. Uh, you don't respect me. You're obviously not committed. All these kind of negative attributions, as Thomas Bradbury and his colleagues would say. Tom Bradbury at UCLA has done a lot of the research on these negative attributions. So these are the four biggies. I just had a session about this this morning, actually. And I said to... Uh, to the couples who do any of these sound familiar, and guess, and they say they all sound familiar. And then we're in a position 
to be reassuring and say, well, look, you're in good company. These problems visit upon many couples, happy and unhappy. And the good news, it's just behavior. We don't have to get into hypotheses about deep, you know, psychoanalytic stuff. It's behavior, and I can teach you, and I will teach you, a communication skill and some others to help. So I know we've got a lot of other things to talk about. So briefly, the first thing we want to do is teach partners how to um, physiologically um, uh, uh, modulate themselves, because we know from research and experience that when we even anticipate a difficult conversation with a partner, certainly when we're in one, the sympathetic fight or flight part of the nervous system gets activated, cortisol, adrenaline, heart rate goes up, just like we're facing any other kind of danger. And it's a terrible time to try to talk about issues, about sensitive feelings and so forth, right? Because we're going to attack or we're going to withdraw. So we want to um, teach couples these time out or stop action rule. If they sense they're getting into an escalation, call a time out, stop action. I encourage couples to come up with their own, uh, you know, nifty name for it in their own language. If, they, if English is a second language, whatever, a, a, a safety word, essentially. And the point is they're going to team up against these pernicious patterns that visit lots yeah. of them. And so one partner says, I think we need a timeout or red balloon or whatever they call it. The other partner has to agree. But then the person who calls the timeout has to lead the way in scheduling a time to come back to the conversation. And that can be in a few minutes after they do some mindful breathing. I teach people to do some mindful breathing. I even teach people a little Qigong. Qigong is an ancient Chinese internal martial art that I've been studying for 30 years. Very useful and also has research behind mm. it, just like mindful breathing does. Yeah. So there's the, the timeout, and then they come back using the skills. If it's an inopportune to talk, within 24 hours. The speaker yeah. listener, very briefly, one partner speaks, one partner's in the speaker role at any one moment, the other's the listener. Speaker speaks for 10 to 15 seconds, keeping it brief, using I statements, not you think and you feel, but I think, I feel, I remember. The other partner repeats back what they heard. Yeah. If, yeah, that kind of thing. And an XYZ uh -huh. statement, blah, blah, blah. So those are the techniques. But the psychoeducational stuff that I just went through about the problem patterns, mm. very important. And if oh. we don't, I'll just say to all the therapists out there, if you don't, lead in 15 minutes you can do this lead the couple through teach the couple those problem patterns you're not providing them first of all a way to diffuse or see through the, the gray gauze of conflict because when people start fighting they, they get into a state and mm. it just seems like one yeah. big mess and when we can name the, the particular patterns they can catch them earlier they can even anticipate that they're about to say something critical or contemptuous and zip it, as we say, yeah. and do something different, yeah. right? It also builds motivation for the skill, which initially feels a little hokey and artificial, but works. And if people practice it, they get better at it. So there's a lot more we could say about the technique. No, that, that's just, that's brilliant. And it's something very concrete. I mean, these are behaviors that are, they're, they're, they stand out, they're obvious, we can identify them quickly. We can do something very pragmatic, um, at the front end of therapy. And um, I think it brings a lot of hope too. Um, but, but you do, like you just said before, you know, you do have to take 
control of the session because it's just too easy especially for you know a, a couple that are you know in a in a really hot state you know they they just can take over the whole session right and 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 you could just sit there and they're just going at it for for 50 minutes but um yeah, yeah <laughs> taking hold of and, the then, and then they turn to you and say why are we paying you for this frankly yeah, exactly no, right it's <laughs> true yeah yeah I mean, I I do remember a couple where where I they were sporting they were sporting and and I actually had a red card and a yellow card, uh, and 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 so in that sense of the uh, of the timeout thing, I I got involved. It became a, a a try thing where they did it with each other, but then I also did it as a therapist, and and we'd all sit back and and so the and and that communication things where you know not only the speaker and the listener. But then repeating back what they say, just to, to um, well, kind of to prove it, but to also to to activate it, uh, and and I find it quite quite interesting how many people who do that sort of uh, repeating back um, after a very short period of time saying, oh, is that is that what? You, oh, I, oh, I didn't know that's what you were saying. And this is stuff they've been saying for for years and years and years. So simple techniques, and as you say, they can. They might seem a little clunky and, and forced, but actually it is um, it is just uh, literalizing and directing what is what is supposed to be a natural behavior. So uh, and and these argument states that we've get into moves them into not unnatural but dysfunctional, you know, uh, non non effective behaviors. Right, natural, unfortunately, dysfunctional behavior, but quite natural. Yeah. 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 So it does feel unnatural at first, but you're absolutely right that, you know, if you're really listening to a friend or a colleague and you respect them and you, you probably do something like what we end up teaching couples, which is, yeah, tell me all about that. That's interesting. Really? That's what happened. Yeah. Like we're giving each other space. But when it comes to our, you know, marriages or equivalent relationships, we often get very defensive and, you know, the alarm bells go off and so forth. So, so we have to prepare people for the fact that it will feel a bit awkward but they're they're more willing to try it out if they know what they're trying to avoid that's the case yeah. and i emphasize this enough because i've seen senior colleagues sometimes present similar kind of work where they don't do the prelude with all the problem patterns and then they're jumping in on video telling the couple oh you're escalating now and they're like what what oh yeah escalation is when you oh and you know, then they have the post yeah post explain literally on one tape i watched years ago a couple turned to the therapist and said now we're getting pissed off at you because you keep interrupting us yeah you and know? doing an enactment but yeah. now we've done beautifully we've we've given them these frameworks given them uh, uh, sets of contexts uh, uh reminded them uh, effective ways of of listening and uh, and understanding each other and then we uh, ramp the whole situation up uh, into something even more tense when it is infidelity. Right. Uh, when there's when there's not just a difficulty between the two, but a wrong. Uh, well, let me. I'm a violation of safety of A violation of safety. Yeah. Please, Peter. What, what do we do now? We've got so we've got them in this state, but it's infidelity. Wow. Right. So as you remember from, from, from our first talk, you know, I think about four types of last chance couples, the high conflict, which we kind of were just talking about then, 
couples in which one partner, typically one, sometimes both, but one has violated the values or safety and expectations of the other. And infidelity is the one we're going to talk about tonight, but others include intimidation, aggression, violence. Um, it's all bad, yes. Also, and then also persistent abuse or overuse of substances, alcohol and other substances. Mm. All of those can leave the other partner feeling uh, um, both that their expectations about reliability and consistency and responsibility of their partner have been violated. Um, they can feel unsafe, literally, of course, with violence, but also with affairs, worrying about getting a, um, um, a sexually transmitted uh, disease that comes up with, with affairs. So, so let me go through kind of the frame particular to working with infidelity. Mm, after, after you've sort of laid out that basic frame, that always has to be there. Uh, we're going to do experiments of possibility. We're not deciding in this session whether you're going to stay together or not. We're going to try to see what can happen around this revelation. And, um, and so all of these are elements. They're not steps because, in fact, um, first of all, all of them, in my experience, have to be named, at least in a first session, as part of helping the couple see that you have some understanding of these issues, addressing their concerns about whether you do have some understanding, like your credibility, your knowledge base. And then from there, uh, we're going to decide, you know, session by session, what we're going to focus on. So don't take these as steps, but rather elements, um, although the first one is usually the first step, and that's discussing the story of how the affair, the affair was revealed. And these days, affairs are generally revealed, in my experience, through people seeing something on, uh, on the phone, text message, social media, um, or maybe they were going through credit card expenses and they saw some unexplained charges for travel or gifts, jewelry. What, what did you, you know, buy that necklace for? Or this nice uh, handbag uh, and what have you. Uh, or sometimes, as in the case that I wrote up for you, which is not in the book, it's special for science of psychotherapy, um, where the person who was the affair partner is angry with the person they were having the affair with and calls the affair on partner. In other words, the, the affair partner gets angry with the person they were um, having an affair with and they call the wife or the husband to report it. And that's what happened in that case. So those are typical ways. I generally don't have this happen too often anymore where someone that a couple starts therapy with me because things aren't so great in the relationship. And then in an individual session, they reveal that there's an affair going on. If the affair is over, I don't require them to disclose it. I don't. Um, if the affair is ongoing, uh, I will say, look, in order for us to really work on your marriage, um, I'm going to ask you to, at the very least, take a vacation from that relationship because your energy is going to be diverted. And I trust when they say they're going to do it, that they did it. I don't have a private eye working with me, but I assume that they are getting my point and that they're committed to working with me on things. So again, in most cases, it's the presenting problem that has now led to a question about um, the future of the marriage. So talking about how the affair was revealed, 
and typically the original uh, moment will be like, you know, the, the affairing partner saying, no, that's not happening, you're making that up, or where'd you get that, or whatever. Sometimes they come clean about it right away, but oftentimes there's like, no, that didn't happen. No. And then finally, the evidence is too overwhelming, and they have to acknowledge it. Um, one of the things that's most puzzling to the affairing partner uh, is that the affaired on partner wants more details, often quite excruciating level of detail about each interlude, each visit, each sexual experience, each dinner that was had. They want, and the affairing partner is like, why do you want to hear more of this? Is that going to make you more upset? So to explain this, uh, we need to introduce the trauma frame, because in every case that I've ever seen over 30 years, at some level, sometimes severe and sometimes at least mild, the affair on partner is literally traumatized. And we use that term all the time to talk about feeling upset. But this is like real trauma where there are intrusions and nightmares and triggers and hypervigilance and numbing on the other side, all the things we associate with any kind of trauma. And of course, the thing that's special about this one is that the person who um, did the thing that traumatized the other is the partner. So the person, let's say something awful had happened to you in the street or what have you, um, the person you would go to for soothing and holding and all of that and safety is the person who perpetrated the events that led to the trauma. It puts the uh, affair on partner in a terrible emotional bind. So one of the things that is very typical with any kind of trauma, not always happens, but certainly happens a lot, is that the traumatized person and their brain is trying to wrap their head, literally their brain, around the um, shattered expectations about the new information. And you know, one of the ways that humans make sense of things is gathering more information. So when there's a trauma like this, they want more information. So I suggest that at least for the time being, the affaired on partner should have, if they want it, access to computer, phone, anything that the other person has to turn over all their formerly semi or totally private stuff. And sometimes they balk at that and I explain, look, you know, we're not going to be able to move forward, I think, because unless you allow this, because A, they're trying to deal with the trauma, and B, they may literally say, Look, I want. I need to know more about what happened here because I want to make a decision about whether I want to stay with you or not. They, they, um, they have a right to hear those things. So while I'm saying this, I'm I'm realizing um, this is an instance. All three of these types of value violating behaviors, affairs, and violence, and substance overuse, they do bring a moral frame to our work. And one of the people who's written most eloquently about this is Bill Doherty. My wonderful colleague at University of Minnesota. And um, I just want to, I'm going to plug his book um, because it's so wonderful. Um, Bill Doherty's book, The Ethical Lives of Clients, Transcending Self-Interest in Psychotherapy. This is a book that at least all my students going forward are going to read and every student of psychotherapy should read because this field, as you know, we could have a whole nother podcast on how our field has traditionally avoided, evaded moral discourse and discussions. But as Virginia Golder 
one of my other uh, mentors and um, idols in the field and whose work on, on domestic violence, interpersonal violence, I base my work on, brought also this concern that when we're working with couples where there's been violence, we have to address what happened from a moral point of view, ethical point of view. It was wrong <laughs> to beat your spouse, to intimidate them, just as it was wrong to cheat on your partner when there were other things you could do if you were unhappy with the relationship or you had individual needs that you needed to you know, get some succulents for or what have you. So, so there is that moral frame. And yet you notice, except for one little slip there, I don't, I don't think about the affairing partner as a cheater. I don't think that's helpful therapeutically. I think it's name calling and it's not language that is useful for a therapist. So that's why, because you asked me before we started, Richard, how I come to those terms. To me, it's the most direct, neutral way of talking about it. The affairing partner and the affaired on partner. The severe attachment breach is not unlike um, a, a young child being abused by a parent where the child is, you know, the attachment breach happens in such a severe way. The child is, you know, would normally be looking to the parent for comfort and the parent is the abuser. And it's, it sounds very similar here. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And you know that, I think, you know, that I worked for 12 years on a project developing a family-based approach to incest. Hmm. You can just imagine yeah. how. And so these things, yeah, these things tie in, don't they, Peter? So of course the, the, the adult attachment style, um, you know, and suddenly it's sort of being betrayed again if you've actually had those those double things. So, so this is where you're also talking about the um, the the individual influence. So the the affaired on partner now they might be securely attached and and traumatized and upset by the experience, but they might be insecurely attached at, from youth, and so they're getting a double whammy. Uh, so there's a very individual approach. Yeah, and and you know if we want to make it even more complex, the affairing partner may also have had, you know, insecure attach. Well, I was thinking that before too, that they're out there Absolutely. trying trying to seek validation um, in a very um, dysfunctional way, yeah. Right, and the case, in fact, that I sent to you and that just got published on your wonderful site is about a guy who, you know, had, I would say, a kind of avoidant attach style. Hmm. His mother was, uh, you know, quite narcissistic and self-aggrandizing and, and, in fact, demonstrated lying to her clients and sort of taught her sons to be deceptive if it served them. Um, and, you know, um, the father was rather passive and wasn't protecting the sons from what was going on with the mom. And, uh, and this guy, you know, not to get into the case yet, but uh, th this guy also reached uh, puberty quite late and was often teased for looking immature. And sometimes kids would boys would tease him and say he looked like a girl and he couldn't get dates. And so then he ends up having affairs with younger women um, as a way to um, uh, bolster his uh, sense of sexual prowess. Yeah. And also almost like as a kind of problematic uh, corrective emotional experience. So as a middle-aged man um, having sex with quite younger women who were his former high school students. So that, and that and, not yeah. when he was teaching, but but uh, later. Later, 
but of course everyone can read that in the magazine which is which is great great uh, uh because it, it is extensively um extensively described it's a beautiful article uh, we also have to have the affairing partner take 100 percent responsibility for their behavior even if they felt emotionally betrayed by their partner and esther perel my dear colleague has talked about that as a very important thing as says my other dear colleague, Michelle Shankman, has written eloquently about affairs, um, that the person who's been affaired on sometimes has engaged in a kind of betrayal as well of the relationship. No, they haven't had an affair, but they may have really been ignoring and rejecting the partner um, for years. And, you know, yeah, no, that's not an explanation. I mean, an excuse for the other partner to then have an affair. But we do have to understand the betrayal is not as simple as like there's a perpetrator and a victim and this old sort of uh, kind of um, Wild West kind of caricature narrative of things. So um, nevertheless, the affairy partner has to take responsibility for acting upon whatever sadnesses, frustrations, loneliness, curiosity, need for self-development they had by having a secret affair. Yeah, this 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 was the action I took. This was the choice I made, regardless of its um, of its um, uh, understandability or or any or, or just you know narcissism. But just I did do this. Um, really, yeah, irrespective of what you did to me or didn't give to me, I made a choice and I mm. take responsibility for that. If we don't do that bit in the first session likely that the other partner won't come back, the affair on partner. Why? Because one of the other things we need to do, of course, over a period of sessions is develop a psychological explanation for why the affairing partner did have the affair. And if, if, if we haven't been clear from the outset that the affairing partner's uh, explanations are not excuses, um, we're going to lose the affair on partner. We're going to Make yeah. her feel like, well, we're giving him a, you know, a psycho card out. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I was troubled. Oh, I was lonely. Oh, you were so rough on me. Oh, etc. We can understand. We have to understand all that stuff. And yet, there were other things they could have done. Yeah. They could have said, "I am desperate." There's. I'll even tell you. There's someone flirting with me, and I'm kind of interested. So we got to work on this relationship, or I can't guarantee. What's coming next with me? I don't feel happy. Like they could do that. It, a lot of things they could do. So we have to say all that in order to set the stage for what will be both individual sessions as well as joint sessions in explaining why they did. And with this gentleman that I wrote about, there were multiple levels. We had a whole chart. <laughs> like we're yeah. 12 things that yeah. converge on this. As Freud said long ago, problem. Problem behavior is multi-determined, and in this case, that's that's usually true. So we also have to help the um, affairing affair partner with their trauma, and there's two things with that. Very briefly, the affairing partner needs to make a daily apology, apology ritual, first thing in the morning, preferable, almost prophylactically, because the affaired on partner is almost inevitably going to be visited by. Um, intrusions, flashbacks, hypervigilance, bad feeling, and so forth. So in the morning, the affairing partner is to say something to the effect of, you know, Laura, Jim, whoever, I just want to say again, 
that I'm very sorry for having done the affair. And I'm also sorry for um, the thoughts and feelings and flashbacks and stuff that you are likely to have because you've been having them across the day. You know, you may be having those thoughts and feelings and I want to apologize in advance for that and say again that I'm sorry. We only do this apology ritual. I present it as a technique in the first session and ask the affair on partner if they want that. They always like the idea. They Sometimes they think, eh, seems a little hokey. I don't know if it's going to help. And then they experience it and they want it. And if the affairing partner fails to give it to them someday in the week uh, between sessions, they'll report that. Yeah, do would, the, it has to be authentic, though, it. right? It has to be authentic, though. It has to be authentic. Yeah, it can't be like, mm. yeah, baby, uh, I'm really yeah. sorry. I'm really <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm checking yeah. out some, uh, I, I, I still got the dating app. I'm checking out, like, yeah. I can't be. It has I, to be, look, I really am sorry. I know how I hurt you. Mm. And I, I know that going across the day, you may experience some of these thoughts and feelings again. And I really apologize for that. So we mm. have them try it in the session. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the behavioural research uh, ages ago talking about trust. I, I can't remember where I read it now. It's a, uh, quite a long time ago, but 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 it only takes it takes one action to to um, disturb trust. But it, in this in this uh, research, it took between seven and ten positive actions in order to rebuild. It, it wasn't just one for one. Um, and I can also imagine, Matt, that um, uh, that, that actually the more you do it. Um, the more likelihood you, you're going to get into it. So you might be a bit insincere, a bit hokey about it at first, but then as you go along and the, but the fourth or fifth time you say it, you go, no, I really am sorry. You know, you, you sort of convincing yeah, yourself a bit too is mm. possible. Uh, uh, yeah. for, for do And as always with these comments, Peter, we've got to accentuate that there are still all those individual responses. Um, and, yeah, and they and change. Every behavior takes some getting used to. Apology, mm. eager listener, take, it doesn't matter. So remember, we're 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 letting people know that at the beginning of our work together that we're an action-oriented approach, action insight, and the, the things that we suggest that they do will inevitably feel, at the very least, artificial, maybe even emotionally irrational, mm. because of all such negative feelings. Because you know you, you're so mistrusting of him or her who had the affair, like how can you even listen to an apology? But then lo and behold, it starts to work. It's, you know, it's magic in a way. Yeah. Just a couple more points and then we can talk in any way you want to go. But yeah, even with this apology, I mean, part of the, the reason for this is once an affair is disclosed, the affairing partner typically kind of just wants to move on. Okay, now you know, let's move on. I don't want to leave. I want to make things better. Meanwhile, the other person is vibrating and they can't, they can't move on. So at least for a few seconds every day, the affairing partner has to revisit their guilt and show that they have remorse and share in the emotional burden of what they did. And that is uh, relieving for the affair on partner, but they, affair on partner also often needs some other ways independently to manage their trauma. So very briefly, I have, uh, them do a um, uh, what I call paradoxical journaling with externalizing. Get a blank diary kind of book, uh, a pen or a pencil that uh, you use only for this purpose, 
and write for 10 minutes in the morning all of the thoughts, the intrusions, the feelings, the nightmares, the anger, mm -hmm. the hurt. Close the book, put it away out of sight so it doesn't trigger you. And then when those thoughts and feelings come up during the day, you can say to them, almost they, like they're a, a being, I see that you're there and I know you're important, but I don't have time to do you justice now because you are important. I'll see you in our evening writing time. And for 10 minutes in the evening, they write again. And the externalizing comes from Michael White and David Epstein, all that wonderful work, narrative therapy. Give it a name, even personify it like uh, the tormentor, you know, the marital destroyer, not the name of your partner who did the pairing, but it's based on the impact that this is having on you. And you can address it that way. And it's this whole idea of creating an imaginative space between these thoughts and feelings and the core self. It's an idea that, in a way, internal family systems also hmm. use it. Hmm. 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 Richard Swartz and stuff. So that is actually very effective. And the, the paradoxical part is that after two weeks of this, the affair to our partner may open the journal in the mornings. I'm not actually, I'm not having the thoughts and feelings. You still bring them forward. So this comes out of uh, Victor Frankel's work, what I affectionately and inaccurately call Great Uncle Vic, not related, <laughs> who invented paradoxical intervention, right? This idea of bringing the symptoms on and even expanding them in mm. some imaginative way as a way to change the power relationship between ourselves and our symptoms. So it's used as the basis of Ericksonian hypnotherapy and was the basis in some ways of um, strategic family therapy by Jay Haley and the original Milan group and so forth. So, so it's quite helpful uh, for the affair on partner to do this and gives them something to help them calm down. Of course, we teach the mindfulness stuff as a way of regulating emotion. And finally, they have to just limit talk time, uh, times to talk about the affair. In principle, the, the, a fair non partner has, you know, full freedom to wake their partner up, call them at work, whatever, but it turns out not to serve them very well to do that over time. So it's best to set up a couple of times during the day that is devoted completely to further questions she or he may have, answers and so forth. Not at any at any moment. That helps to limit the trauma both of the relationship and um, for the Faradon partner, they have to decide who to talk to about it. There's a lot of things that go into this treatment. Mm -hmm. They have to decide who to talk to. If they call a family member, family member may, you know, be very angry with their in-law now, their son or daughter-in-law, and also with their own child. So, like, how can you stay with him? How can you stay with her? Like, after that, that could lead to further difficulties down the road. So, they have to decide, is there a sibling or a good friend who could really keep it secret and won't reject the other partner? And um, we have to have conversations about that because the affair on partner needs someone else to talk to. They can only rely on the partner who mm -hmm. did the affair. Mm -hmm. And finally, sort of finally, is um, formulating a plan to end contact, contact with the affair partner and also change affair facilitating behavior. Right. So if there was a lot of drinking involved and late nights, uh, business meetings and stuff, maybe those have to end. They probably do. Business travel, certainly with the affair partner, has to end. 
I mean, there's all sorts of examples I could give you of changes that people had to make that were kind of difficult. Hmm. Uh, but but but, it, but you've got to make it's uh, it's difficult. It's but it's it's setting a priority, uh, and uh, and and I think uh, in a in a relationship, it's um it's 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 difficult and it changes over time. Uh, you know, I'm in a second marriage, uh, which kind of means I'm older and I've I've done things. But fundamentally, I just keep getting back to the point of saying, I want to be with this woman. And whatever it is that's bothering me at the moment is not important enough. Uh, and uh, and that's a difficult thing when you're younger and you're you're perhaps in the prime of you know mid thirties, uh, early forties, in the prime of your career, and and those business trips. That decision is a big decision as to how important your relationship is, how important your children are. Uh, as you're saying, sometimes the children are the ones that are. Um, are putting up additional stick into the game. So there's a lot to work on. I, I, I really appreciate, Peter. And as a therapist, um, uh, I, I'm reminded of that 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 old thing of the, the 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 carnival act with the sticks with the plates on the top, and you spin the spin the plates. The, the, you got to. So there's a lot of of work to keep spinning, which clients obviously can't do on their own. You know, and that's, of course, why they're in trouble. Right. And we have to provide them a map that's coherent so that they feel like, OK, this therapist really understands what we're going through and has a plan. Yeah. Not going to be helpful, not helpful, is a therapist who comes in and hasn't read the literature on affairs and treatment and just thinks it's going to be any same as any old couple therapy where each partner has their point of view <laughs> that's a disaster yeah. so it's a, it's the plan and the tools because the the journaling um that you talk about uh, and i know from my own experience it can be incredibly powerful i remember having a a, a middle-aged woman as a client uh, she was felt like she was falling in love with a younger guy he was flirting with her she came to me she wanted help because she didn't want to go in that direction she was an author and so we used that um, that skill, and she she sort of wrote um, the story of what would happen if she continued on in this direction with this younger guy, and um, and you know it became a horror story, <laughs> and that was that was the thing that then really um, turned her around, um, her own ability to actually get stuff down on paper. So very helpful. That's right. It makes it a bit more real. Gets it out of the head. This yeah, like makes it a bit positive. more, you know, objective rather than, you know, that subjective where you can uh, and and harder to avoid too, I suppose, Peter uh, and Matt. You know, with with that. It, also, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. That's all I was saying. Yeah. It, 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 as you were talking about it, uh, Matthew, it reminded me. <laughs> we're not talking to, tonight about so much about working with drug and alcohol overuse, but one of the techniques that they use in like the AA program, which I think is a fantastic program. I've worked with quite a number of people in recovery and I hear all the slogans and the ideas and they're brilliant. Um, so one of them is the notion of playing the tape forward. Mm. Like, okay, you think you want to have a drink? You just came out of rehab? You want to go to the to the packy, as we call it in Boston? You want to go to the packy and get yourself sick? Back? All right. All right, so go ahead, buddy. You're going to have that beer in the pack and a lot. And, uh, and then what's going to happen next? 
You know what's going to happen mm. next. Give him another beer and another beer. Then you're going to go to O'Reilly's bar and get shit-faced, excuse my language, listeners who are sensitive, and fall down on the frickin' floor and the cops are going to come and you know how the Boston cops are. They're very tough. You know, joking exactly. around. Exactly. Playing the tape forward is one of the best things for the alcoholic who is like, just need some relief right now. It's like, okay. And where's that going to take you? Yeah. Same thing with, with having a, an affair. Like, you know, I, I just, you know, if it's that impulsive, like I need some kind of gratification. I need some validation. I need some sex. No. And I need it for a thing. I can't just like go online. I got to get somebody. Well, yeah. okay. Just think about that. Where's that going to take you? Consequence thinking, which is what we talk to kids about when they're five. You know, if you have that extra lolly, you know, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So, so this and and just sort of hearing in there, there's potentially um, potentially some um, uh, indications that impulsiveness of of um, you know uh, arrested development through to prior trauma. So there's there's all kinds of of potentially uh, useful things that that um, that in, individual psychotherapy can do. And that just takes us back to what you say. There's, there's couple sessions, but then there's also individual sessions where you're helping people work through the things that put them into the frame where doing these actions seem to be like an okay idea, despite the fact that they just had red marks and crosses and 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 uh, don't do this all over them yet we still do it yeah and i look back on my life i've done those things and i learned a lot from them i learned a lot from them. Uh, you know didn't create too much disaster um yeah. uh, mostly just hurt myself in, in my problems but that's where you, that's where you learn if you if you if you learn as different from um succumb and be defeated by and that's why we need the therapist. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah you know, just on this point of like that we talked about at the beginning and you kind of alluded to now is that some people um, have affairs be, be, because, you know, of deep longings, um, either for who they were in the, in the recent or remote past or, you know, what they've been missing uh, for a long time in the relationship. Mm. And that's again part of what we need to honor in the in the narrative of the affairing partner, and to understand that, um, and then help them either get it from the relationship or figure out maybe this relationship isn't the one to get that with. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of a of a couple I worked with a few years ago that's mentioned in my book, not, not in some detail actually, you know, fair amount of detail, where the woman had the affair. Um, she was uh, you know, in, in the finance business, doing extremely well, early 30s, her husband also early 30s, they had two young kids. And, um, you know, she uh, was of um, South Asian descent and grew up in a mostly kind of white city um, and, you know, felt as a woman of color, sometimes exoticized, sometimes you know pushed away like you're not white but, you know some racism there um she's quite beautiful and you know she became a teenager got a lot of attention and that was very gratifying and it kind of um helped her in those moments where she would feel the opposite you know feel like mm -hmm. oh well 
darker skin, so I'm, I'm not a regular American girl. So she had had this kind of um, feeling about her own beauty and her, and her being a person of color and the racism she was experiencing. So long and short of it, she uh, meets a guy, a white Caucasian man from another city. And um, um, she's also like someone who was kind of, a, in, in many ways, very devoted, very bright um, student and a successful person, and also had a free, fun-loving side that she sort of connected more with her dad. Her mom was more the, you know, the doctor, very professional, and her dad was more of an artistic guy, and she, she had both those things. And, um, you know, she did, she climbed the, the ladder in the company quite quickly, was doing actually better than her husband, relatively speaking. Had two little kids, and she ended up um, having uh, a number of affairs with business colleagues on business trips. I won't get into all the details; people can read about that in the book. But but basically, um, one of the things that that was most helpful to her in terms of and to the husband in terms of understanding like what happened here was that in some ways she was having a hard time fully making the transition to being a mother and, you know, a, a married person. She longed for those times uh, that were so gratifying and, uh, and gave her so much at a, at a time when she also experienced sometimes racist rejection. She was longing for that. And so she would get quite inebriated in some of these business meetings and, you know, become the life of the party again. And she, was helpful to think about this from a life cycle adjustment point of view for her. Like, yeah, those days are kind of over uh, in terms of like getting it in that intense way from other people. At the same time, her husband was kind of an uptight guy. So I had to really work with him to become looser and a little more carefree so that she could get more of that passionate uh, mm. stuff from him. Interestingly, she picks a guy, very handsome guy, but kind of uptight, you know, um, so. I, th I feel that that's a really good point to be making. We're working with infidelity, working with couples. So there's just with couples, there's a lot of work of established, there's a lot of stuff we don't know about being couples that we can know and, and which you've described in this podcast and of course in your book and in the articles. And then we still get to these, uh, at, at all points, we've just got to continue to embrace the frailty of our um, of bringing our capacities into their strengths. Mm. Uh, the, it's a journey and it's a pathway, and we are an interpersonal species, uh, and, uh, and we really need each other. And maybe it would be better if uh, we still lived in villages and we had the fantastic Uncle Bert and Auntie Mary, and, but we don't. And so we have us and we have yeah. wonderful people like you, Peter, who yeah. can help people come from these enormously confused and complex uh, interactive states um, and then two of them and bring them all together. And through these mechanisms, I hope the people that have been listening 
uh, have been able to you know, get their pens out, if not re-listen and get your pens out, and jotting down these things, these these areas of focus, these um, natures, these you know, there's a four of this and a five of that, uh, and then even more so that they go out and uh, buy your book uh, and at least come in and look at the the magazine this month. There's there's a lot of material, and for members of the psycho science of psychotherapy, we've got um, uh, your material in there uh, for them to access yeah. to. Let, let me just remind people also, like, get the book, Last Chance Couple Therapy, Bringing Relationships Back from the Brink, Peter Frankel. Um, you'll be doing yourself a favor. There's everything is is right there. So, And I'm Peter, going to be getting those other ones that you've mentioned as well. Oh yeah. so, so thank you. Thank you for bringing those to our attention too, Peter. Peter, wonderful as always. Thank you so much for connecting us um, and just sharing your wisdom once again and uh, just looking forward to continuing to to hear more from you in the future love it always a pleasure gentlemen thank you really a pleasure to speak with you um, now matt we went on a bit with with mm. peter this time but there was so much to do um yeah. uh, it's just so interesting what peter has to say just so much background and knowledge and like, like, there were several books that he talked about uh you know these different formats and frames uh, uh it was really an extended uh uh was a masterclass. It was wonderful yeah and look, to be honest, I, I grasp a fair amount when we're listening to a podcast like this, but really um, to get the essence of it, jump across and get his book, The Last Chance Couple Therapy, Bringing Relationships Back from the Brink. We'll leave a, a link in the show notes and, and also the articles that we've got in the Science of Psychotherapy magazine for March and April. Um, you'll find articles from Peter there as well. So. And of course, you can go over to our YouTube channel and you can watch the uh, watch right. is actually speaking and look at our facial expressions and and mm -hmm. uh, see whether I'm paying attention. And uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it's really it's really great to to do that. And there's lots of other things in the YouTube channel as well. So heaps that you can do uh, and engage with ourselves. A podcast, a YouTube channel, the the academy. And thank you so much, everybody, for being out there and listening and spending the time to learn uh, more about how to work with couples uh, dealing with infidelity. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. We'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.